Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Paul Mumaw. I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis. And uh, if you've got a Bible with you today, I want to invite you to take it and turn to Song of Songs, chapter 5. Uh, we've also got some Bibles around the room on the floor, uh, page 470, and always uh, we'll have the uh, Scripture text on, on the screen for you, too. Uh, before uh, we get started in that, I, I hope you see how much we value students here at Genesis Church uh, through the video that was shown just a moment ago, a few of many uh, of some great stories uh, of life change. Not only do we, uh, uh, you know, do we value students, but we also value children uh, and children's ministry here at, at Genesis Church. And with that in mind, you know, we know that it's the summer, and because it's summer, well, we love the weather and we love to travel. And boy, there are plenty of sports and activities that are going on all summer long. And uh, for this reason, there are many churches that during the summer that will actually shut down their children's ministry, uh, knowing that with travels and schedules, it's going to be really tough and difficult. But we want you to know that at Genesis, uh, we're committed uh, to our children's ministry. We believe what we do here on Sunday morning with kids uh, is extremely important. And uh, But here's what we know. Because it's the summertime and with travel, we're at a place right now where we're really in need of some help. And uh, we've got some of our leg- regular volunteers that are taking a well-needed break, and many for uh, different reasons. Uh, we could use some extra help and assistance to help continue on this ministry uh, all summer long. And so I'm challenging you today. I, I hope you'll pray about uh, maybe stepping up with us and uh, helping to serve in our children's ministry. Uh, would you be willing to do that two times in June? Would you be willing to do that two Sundays uh, in July? If you've taken a break, you know, maybe you've served in the past, could this be a good time for you to jump back in? And we know, again, that with travel schedules, there may be some weeks uh, that you're gone, but we want you to know that your contribution and you serving on any given week could be a big help uh, in our, GS, or our Gen Kids ministry. And so if you could help us out in that, again, we are really desperate for some uh, helpers right now. Uh, you can go to our website. You can find people like Ryan Hornbaker, our Gen Kids coordinator. Contact him and let him know. You can stop by the Gen Kids desk uh, this morning before you leave and tell him, hey, I'd be happy to help or catch one of our staff or stop by the Info Hub. But we really could use your help and assistance uh, in making this a really great summer. So uh, we are finishing up our series today called Relationship Goals. Uh, We've spent the last five weeks in the Song of Songs following this couple as they meet, as they date, as they get married. Today we're going to see what happens uh, when they face kind of their first bump in the road uh, in their marriage. This is the uh, first uh, conflict uh, that we see here in Song of Songs. And I do believe it's intentional uh, for us today because the truth is that we've all got different ways that we fight, right? Uh, We all have conflict in our relationships and and in our marriages. And uh, in fact, I saw uh, one example of this this past week. It's a bit uh, unconventional, uh, but I just wanted to share it with you. It's about a a woman, a wife named Lisa and her husband of 31 years, Emil. The article says this. It says, when she and her husband shared a home together, they, they fought constantly. He's an introvert who doesn't like to entertain, doesn't mind clutter, and she's the opposite. So they'd go to counseling and things would get better for a while before turning toxic again. But after one nasty fight, Lisa drove around entertaining the idea of moving, but she still wanted to be married to her husband. Well, that's when the idea of the great compromise came to mind. Well, how did they resolve this conflict? Well, you've heard of couples that sleep in separate bedrooms. Lisa and her husband decided that they would live in separate houses. Uh, The article goes on. The couple with three grown kids have lived five miles apart for eight years now. 
Despite the distance, our marriage has never been closer, says Lisa. We see each other six days a week and have overnights four times a week. Most of the time, he comes to my house and I make dinner. We sit in front of the fire, share a meal by candlelight, and chat, by our, chat about our day, the kids, the news, everything that couples talk about when they've been married for years, sometimes conclude concludes, Lisa, the best way to live happily ever after uh, with someone is to live apart. See, uh, the truth is, right, that uh, there's going to be conflict in every marriage. I want you to know this morning that there is going to be conflict in every marriage, all right, in every relationship, even in great marriages, even in the healthy, most uh, romantic, most passionate marriages, uh, conflict is going to occur, and it's true in Christian marriages as well. Uh, you got to know that. Just because two people love Jesus and love each other doesn't mean there aren't going to be disagreements, you know, that arise and, and passions that get stirred. And so I want to look in on this couple with you today. Uh, again, we've been looking at this man, Solomon, and his now wife. And uh, we talked about the honeymoon last week. Well, the honeymoon is over. And uh, from what we can tell now, they're going to run into their first uh, tough patch together, maybe their first conflict. And it's described for us in Song of Songs, chapter 5, starting in verse 2, uh, from her perspective, all right? She starts here. Look what it says. It says, I, I slept but my heart was awake. Now, we can kind of gather that it's late at night. Uh, she's gone to sleep, but maybe fitfully here we see, all right? She's a little restless in her sleep. She's missing her husband. Now, we can only wonder what time was he supposed to be home, right? I mean, what, what did he promise? Maybe they had made plans. Uh, we can maybe assume that dinner's in the microwave, all right, because he's late. Uh, but look at what she says next. She says, listen, my beloved is knocking. Now, that should get our attention, all right? The bedroom door's locked, all right? So obviously, uh, there's a bit of a problem here. That can't be a good sign. Look at Solomon's response. He says, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. Now, we know when a man talks like this, all right, these terms of affection, all right, he knows that he's in the doghouse here. He knows he's in trouble, and maybe we would assume that there's only one thing on his mind. Well, most of the time, we know there's only one thing uh, on a man's mind, but here's what he said to her. He says, from this, the other side of this locked door, he says, my head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. And so Solomon, he's been out all night. We don't know if he's been with the fellas, all right? I, I think from uh, what we're, is described here in this poetry of sorts is that he's probably been working. Uh, and so he's tired. He's sweaty. He, he wants to clean up. He wants to have a meal. He wants to be with his wife. But then she shuts him down, all right? Look what, what she says next. She says, I have taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them again? She's officially taking the not tonight position, all right? That, that's what she is communicating here. She's basically said, look, I'm in my PJs. I've showered. I'm ready for bed. And that's a scene, right, when you think about it, that just plays out again over and over in marriages. Uh, every marriage is going to experience some sort of conflict. It doesn't have to be, you know, the, the husband coming home from late from work and the wife shutting him down. It's, it's not always about intimacy, uh, but sometimes about money and responsibilities. Uh, certainly know there are conflicts when it comes to, to parenting together, making right decisions together. Uh, we, know, we know there are important decisions to be made in a marriage. There, there are priorities to be examined all the time. Conflict is going to be a part of any relationship and it can happen anytime there's what one person described as these expectations and reality, all right? That every single one of us, that we come into a relationship, that we exist in a relationship with our spouse, and for every one of us, we have expectations 
And then there's reality. There is what we experience. And so it's like this. You know, I I want something, and yet you don't deliver. Or uh, you expect something from me, and and I don't come through. Expectation is what we'd like to see happen. Expectation is what I desire, what you desire. Reality is what's happening. All right? Reality is the experience. And here's what happens is conflict is what emerges in the gap between the two, right? Right? Does that make sense? And it happens all the time in marriages. And uh, if you've been married for some time, maybe you, you look back and reflect and you think about some of those challenges that you went through as you were starting a home, as you were uh, starting your life together, working through these expectations that you had for one another. I mean, when you get married and you set up a home together, I mean, there are decisions to be made as far as like, well, who's going to cook, you know? And so maybe you had these expectations when you entered into your marriage. Maybe there were expectations in reality when it comes to who's going to clean the house, who's going to do the laundry, or, you know, there are expectations when it comes to, you know, our promptness and, and being on time or what the other person says is being fashionably late. And, and, and so if you're different, you, you've experienced those, those conflicts in the gap. I remember uh, when Jenny and I were first married, uh, we discovered that she was fine not making the bed every day. All right? Now, that's crazy talk as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I was raised in such a way that you make your bed every morning when you get out of it. And so there were times that, you know, maybe our bed was left unmade. In fact, I'm so crazy and insane that there were times that just before I would get into bed, even if it was unmade, I'd make it, all right, and get it nice and tight, you know, just so that I could pull back those sheets because the sheets have to be tucked into the mattress just right, okay? And so, you know, we would fight about these things. There were certain expectations. There, there was reality that we were learning. There was the conflict that emerged between the two. I, I promise you that we have argued about greater things in life, all right, than, than just about, you know, how to make the bed or whether we should make the bed or not. And I will say this, we make the bed every day now, every day. All right, 18 years, we make that bed, and I I play a big part of that too, at least some of the time. But uh, again, we've argued about greater and more important things, but I don't know how the expectation gap has hit you. Uh, If you're newly married, man, if you've just been doing this a short time, you're probably experiencing this a little bit, the expectation, the reality, the conflict that emerges in between. If you've been married uh, for a while, you know, maybe a few years now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, you know, because of some of the challenges, you know, this isn't the marriage that I thought it was going to be. Or if you're honest with yourself, she's not what I thought, or he's not acting as I thought he would. Or, you know, if you've been in this 15 years, if you've been in this 20 years, you know, and you barely get along now, I mean, maybe you're at a place where you're saying, you know, we're just, we're in this, we're sticking together really just for the kids. Or uh, again, you know, he's, he's not the husband I thought he'd be. She's not the wife I thought she'd be. There's this expectation, there's reality, and then there's this gap in between. And that's what's happening here in this story to a degree. And that's what happens to ignite most conflict in marriage and really in any relationship. Because if you always do what I want, well, then, hey, we're good, right? Or if I always do what you want, I mean, maybe we're okay. But it's only when there's a gap between expectation and reality. And from this interaction here in Song of Songs, we're going to see a little bit of what the key is to handling the conflict that emerges in the gap. Look at uh, verse 4. All right, the door's still locked. He's still on the other side. She writes, she says, my beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. Now, did he just put his fist through the door? All right, well, you may think that in looking at it, but further study shows not so fast. Most scholars believe that there's a little something lost in translation here, but this is really a peace offering on the part of Solomon. 
that basically he's hurt his wife. She's not up for what he's wanting, but maybe he's a little disappointed. But what he's doing here is he's giving her a symbol of love. It's a sign of love and patience. I mean, by jiggling the latch, he's saying to her, okay, I hear you. Let's take a rain check. I still love you. In fact, as we'll see here in the text, he leaves a little gift, some myrrh on the doorknob, he, and he's going to leave, all right? But notice how she's going to have a change of heart because eventually, as we continue on there, it says, I arose to open for my beloved, all right? So she goes to the door, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt on the doorknob there. Verse 6, she says, I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was, he was gone. So hearing this little jiggle of love here at the door, she's got a change of heart. She decides to get up to let Solomon into the room, but he's gone. And we don't know why for sure, but, but guys, I think we probably can guess what's happening here. He's frustrated, all right? He's frustrated, and in the tension, he decides to walk away from her and process, process rather than to stay and to fight it out. And right or wrong, I want you to see how the way in which he responds is going to affect her approach and response to him. Again, look at verse six. She says, I opened for my beloved, all right? So she's up now. She's come to the door, but my beloved had left. He was gone. And then look at the picture of what we get uh, of her reaction. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called him, but, but he did not answer. Verse seven, the watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my cloak, those watchmen of the walls. Now, I think we can be pretty sure that she did actually receive a physical uh, beating here from the watchmen in the city. Now, why? Well, she's the queen, okay? All right, her husband's the king, all right? They mess with his wife, and, and he'll have their heads for this. But instead, what I think we see here is that she's going through these streets, at least uh, you know, emotionally, if you would. Maybe she's dreaming here, some would say. And, and every time she looks for her husband around every corner, she can't find him. She encounters one of these watchmen who, who respond, I haven't seen him, and so it bruises her soul. All right, she's hurt. She's longing for this man. She's torn up about the way that he left and now wonders if her husband will ever come back to her. And so she responds, as we'll see here, she's faint with love. Look at verse eight. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you. She says to her friends, if you find my beloved what will you tell him? Tell him I am faint with love. Now, this is a pivotal stage, really, in any conflict. It's the moment when our heart turns, all right, and our heart turns and we start to focus less on what the conflict is about and more on the person that we love, more on the relationship that we have. And so all of a sudden, she wants him. And I want you to see why her response is so important in this moment. You see, in the moments, in these moments of conflict, all right, when the tension is high, all right, and we've all been in them, right, okay? We've all been in situations like this. The tension is high. We've all got a choice to make a personal choice to, to either be understood or to understand. It's a choice to dig in, uh, to fight what you want, or to consider what the other side may be thinking. See, the, the, the key is the success of a relationship shouldn't be measured by the lack of conflict, but great relationships are all about how committed we are to resolving conflict. All right, our patience and our trust with one another. Consider this. Let me give you one example. In 1961, uh, President John F. Kennedy and the CIA decided to take out Fidel Castro, and there was a lot of discussion about how this was going to happen, and they finally decided to, to, to plan an invasion at a place called the Bay of Pigs, and the result was, was absolute disaster. 
Uh, and not too much long after this, there was another foreign policy situation uh, that was far more serious. The U.S. had discovered that the Soviet Union had placed missiles inside of Cuba just about 60 miles offshore. And like the Bay of Pigs, there was much discussion and conflict amongst the Kennedy administration as to what they should do. Uh, should they invade Cuba? Uh, should there be a blockade? And ultimately, they decided to pursue a blockade, and it proved to be the right decision. It was a major foreign policy victory for the U.S. and for our national security. Now, the story behind the story reveals that different, uh, the different approach that went into the president uh, making these decisions. For example, with the Bay of Pigs, he used what is sometimes referred to as the advocacy approach. Uh, with the Cuban Missile Crisis, he used what's referred to as the inquiry approach. Now, what happened with the Bay of Pigs decision was that the president and all of the national security advisors advocated uh, their personal preference or position. So they argued uh, why uh, they were right and why the president should move forward with, with their particular plan. But President Kennedy decided to have his advisors use the inquiry process with the Cuban Missile Crisis. His, his advisors were asked to argue for the position of the people they disagreed with. And so the CIA had to argue from the military's point of view and vice versa. And what we learned, what was learned from this is that by inquiring from the other person's position, they ultimately came up with the decision to blockade and it was the right decision. In other words, they sought first to understand rather than simply being understood. And that's a little of what's happening here in Song of Songs and in this conflict. I mean, notice that she's not going to use this moment or this conflict or this lateness to manipulate him. She's not going to dig in and fight for a week, all right, in order to be understood. Instead, she humbles herself and she tries to understand where he's coming from. And her heart is moved in the moment, so much so that I want you to see what happens next here. I mean, her friends, they ask her, really, what's so great about this guy? What is it, you know, that, 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 that allows you to get so wound up about him? And look what she says, starting in verse 10. Basically, she says, you know what? He might make mistakes, but my beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is purest gold. His hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. Skip over to verse 16. She says, this is my beloved. This is my friend, daughters of Jerusalem. So this woman who like a half hour ago flat out rejected her man is now obsessed with him again. And in this moment, what I believe that God is doing is he's working on both hearts and he's changing her heart. She's open to him. Solomon didn't change her heart. Let's let that be a lesson to all of us. You know, you can't change your spouse's heart. Sure, there are things that we can do to make a great impression, to show love, to our spouse. God is greater than any of us. He can change your husband. He can change your wife's heart. All right? So Solomon wasn't even there. And so we can't change our partner's hearts. Only God can. And only he will as we trust him, as we give him room to work, as we give him time and space. Here's the thing for us. Conflict is going to be a part of any relationship. Uh, it's going to be a part of any healthy marriage. We're not going to get rid of it. But the question is, how do we manage it in such a way that it will enhance our, our marriage or grow the relationship. In other words, how should we act in the gap? How should we act in the gap when we know there are expectations, we know there is reality? So I want to give you, as we wrap up this series, just four things that we can learn from this passage and from some other scriptures too. And uh, we've included these in your notes, if you would. The first thing is this, that when it comes to conflict in any marriage, I, I want to challenge you today to trust positive intentions. 
Uh, Trust positive intentions. You know, during week three, we talked about the importance of the wedding vows and remembering what we promised, remembering what you promised to your spouse on your wedding day. And and so if you're married and you think back to that day, uh, there was something that you loved about him right? There was something great that you loved about her. There was something deep inside of you and in that relationship uh, that made you trust him or her. And one thing that I think that can help all of us in that expectation gap is to believe that whatever was there then still has the potential to be there today, all right? That same love, that same trust. uh, Look at this. I was reading about the story of uh, Sana, Cleric, and Adnan, uh, they met online. His screen name was uh, Prince of Joy. Her screen name was Sweetie. And uh, he entered the online uh, chat room from, from work. She worked at an internet cafe in Bosnia. They were both married to other people, all right, but their marriages were in trouble, and so they were drifting, and so they found each other online. Well, they eventually decided to meet up, but there's no happy ending to this story because it turns out that Sweetie was already married to Prince of Joy. All right, they were already married to each other, all right, and then found each other uh, through this online service, and so now they discover uh, that they're having an affair with one another, and a few months later, they were filing for divorce, each accusing the other for being unfaithful. Sana said, I thought I had found the love of my life, the way this Prince of Joy spoke to me, the things he wrote. I had never experienced this in our marriage. Adnan said, I was so happy to have found a woman who finally understood me. Then it turned out that I hadn't found anyone new at all, isn't it true that there's always an expectation gap? This is what I thought it would be. This is the way that it really is. What we expect and reality and the conflict that emerges between the two. And I just, I wonder if that's maybe where some of you are today, right now, in your marriage. And again, marriage is tough. And it's tough, it's not easy. And so maybe for some of you today, I mean, some time has passed and, and the conflict is so great And maybe there have been some really challenging things that you, your husband, your wife have have gone through together. Maybe it is now that you just fight over the smallest things, but there are so many of them all piling on top of one another. And well, because of it, you're not communicating anymore, at least not clearly. And the truth is that he has the potential to be the man that you married on your wedding day. And the truth is that she has the potential to still be that woman that you married on your wedding day. And so let me ask you this. Are are you fighting over things that really matter? Or are you caught up in the little things that tend to build up so much? Do you struggle with with, with trusting positive intentions? Um, Back to the story here. You know, the wife is tired. She's been sleeping restlessly. And you know what that's like. I know what that's like to be drifting in and out of sleep. You wake up in the morning. It's so exhausting. It's like, you know, I shouldn't have even bothered, you know? Why even try to sleep? And we see by Solomon playing with the lock that he trusts her. Like he understands that, he's not, that she's not trying to manipulate him by withholding affection. She's not being mean. She's just tired. And so he jiggles the lock as a way of saying, I love you. I hear you. I'm disappointed. But I understand. And she trusts his good intentions. And eventually she's going to go looking for him. And one thing to understand in all of our marriages is that, that conflict, or let's think about this. One of the things to understand in our marriage conflict is that maybe, and really maybe the most important thing to remember is this, that your spouse is not the enemy. 
All right, your spouse is not the enemy. Your, your spouse is on the same side. You generally, both of you, want the same things, and so your spouse is not the enemy. Paul speaks to this in his letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. See, the thing is this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have a very real enemy. All right, who would love to have you believe that your husband or that your wife is the enemy. And Satan loves to attack marriages. He loves to come after our marriages. And remember what we said a couple of weeks ago, that as, as Christians, if our marriages look better, if we loved harder, if our marriages lasted longer than any other marriages in this world, that we could have a huge impact in this world for Christ, and Satan knows that. And so he will use every tool that's before him and at his disposal to come after you and to come after your spouse and in your marriage. But when you trust positive intentions, that's just one more way of fighting back and disarming him. Because if he can't pit your spouse against you, his game is foiled and he's got to go somewhere else to try and fight. And so trust positive intentions in your marriages and in your conflict. The second thing is this, don't get historical, all right? Now, don't confuse that with hysterical. I didn't say get hysterical, all right, but don't get historical. Now, one of the things that we do sometimes, and uh, you may find it to be a great weapon in an argument, in the moment of conflict, is to bring up the past, right? And uh, maybe this has never happened to you, but uh, maybe for some of you here today, maybe, maybe you and your spouse were having, let's say, a really intense discussion, and all of a sudden, one of them blurts out, you know what, this is just like in 1991. Now, that creates a problem for you in this moment because, first of all, you've got no response to that because you have no idea what happened in 1991, all right? You don't even know who was president in 1991. Uh, the second thing is that even if you did something in 1991, it's not like you can go back and change whatever happened in 1991. Another way we get historical is to blame a particular conflict on the character of our spouse. And so we might say something like, you always, or you never. And so we're saying, in effect, that every time this happens, your character reverts back to a particular behavior or a trait. Or another way is that we'll bring up our spouse's parents, right? That's a good one, right? You want to bring some fire into any conflict? I mean, there's no sure way of getting your spouse boiling to say, you know what, you're just like your mom sometimes, or, or to say, you know, you're only like this because of how your dad treated you, okay? Again, that's just like fuel on the fire in any conflict. And so our current conflicts can quickly become historical. And I'll just say that I know this too well, all right? I've experienced this in my home and in my marriage. Um, I've been ironing my clothes uh, ever since we've been married, since 1998, all of my own clothes. And it's not like that I expect my wife, Jenny, to iron my clothes every week, but I could use some help from time to time, all right, if, I, if I'm just honest with you. And according to Jenny, here's what happened, allegedly. We were newly married, all right? She was ironing my pants, and knowing that she had never ironed the pants of a man before, I just offered her some advice, a suggestion, in how to do it a little more appropriately. Now, if you asked her about it today, she would say something like, I don't iron your clothes because you made the comment, my mom never irons my pants like that. Now, I stand here today honestly to testify that those words did not come out of my mouth, all right? I would never say something as stupid as that, but Jenny feels like it's her get out of ironing my clothes for the rest of our lives card. Sounds pretty historical uh, to me. 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us that uh, it, all right, 1 Corinthians 13, 5, it, that is love, does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. 
It keeps no record of wrongs. I feel like my wife is keeping a record of my wrongs, all right, when it comes to ironing uh, my pants. But, uh, you know, we do that sometimes, don't we? I'm, we're all guilty of that. We, we keep records of wrongs with our spouse, and maybe we bring it up, and because we bring it up, it gives us more power, and the more charges we bring up, the more we can go after her character, the more you can go after his character. Maybe we think it'll help us win our case, which is really a pretty dangerous thing. Here's the thing. Listen, if you fight to win all the time, that's not a healthy way to approach your spouse. That's not a healthy way to approach conflict in marriage. The goal of marital conflict should be to build up the relationship. All right, what can we learn together? How can I be more humbled in this moment? What can I learn from what's happening here? Not to tear down the other person. Don't get historical. The third thing is this, own your part. All right, you and I have an individual side to this. Again, when it comes to conflict, there are two sides to every story, right? That's true. Uh, you know, even uh, when we're invested in so much in one side, you know, that we can't possibly imagine uh, where the other person is coming from or what they're thinking. I mean, think about how this happens in politics, our, our current political situation right now. I mean, some will say, how could you possibly vote for that guy? Another side says, how could you possibly vote for that woman? Uh, it happens in sports, you know. The, the fans of one particular team will make, you know, all these, you know, remarks about another team and vice versa. It happens in conflict. You know, I'm, I'm right. You're wrong. End of story. But not so fast because I want to, to point out to you what is probably the best teaching on conflict in all of Scripture. Flip over in the New Testament, if you would, uh, to James chapter 4 for just a moment. James chapter 4, verse 1 uh, James writes this. He says, what, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Basically, hey, do you know the source? You want to know the root of it? You want to know where it comes from? He says, don't they come from your desires? Listen, he says, you, you've got these desires. I have these desires. There's this battle within you, all right, when it comes to any given conflict. He says, you desire but do not have, so you kill. Basically, what he's saying is a, a frustrated desire is like a bomb that, that has to be diffused. He says, you covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And so James here, this is the brother of Jesus, says the reason that we fight is not because our spouse is a jerk. It's not necessarily because they're running late all the time. It's not because, you know, he never picks up his socks or that he talks to you like an infant, not because he's always working late and not because he's never there when you, you need her. He says, what causes fights and quarrels? So often James says that they come from our desires, that battle within us. My, my desires, he says, the battle within me, he says, there is something I want and do not have. Basically, what he's pointing out is there's this expectation gap. I have these expectations and these desires, things that I want fulfilled, and then there's reality and the conflict that emerges, this expectation gap. He says, you covet, but you don't get what you want, and so you fight. And so, can I just challenge you? I want you to just pause for a moment. And if you're in a relationship right now or if you're in a marriage right now, I want to ask you, what do, what do you fight about the most? What's that one thing that comes to mind for you? And you might not have to think about it very long because maybe you've already got it, but if you've got that one thing, if you're thinking about that desire right now that's not being fulfilled, all right, that one thing that leads to so much conflict in your marriage, what, what's the expectation that you have that's not being met? And then thinking about what James says, isn't that what's causing the conflict, leading to conflict, that desire that's battling with you? And I know this is humbling, all right, and maybe this is a stretch for some of us, 
But you and I and our desires, the desires that are within us, are at least a root of the problem, a root that leads to the problem, at least the source or the cause. We've got a part to play when it comes to conflict in our relationships. And so how do you solve that? Well, James gives us an indication on this fourth thing that is so key to closing the expectation gap. Look at uh, verse 2 there again, and then on to verse 3. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James reminds us that sometimes our conflicts, at least the root of our conflict, is expecting something from our spouse that they're not even equipped to give us, all right? That we desperately want our wife to be more affirming to us, and that's not who they are. That's maybe an area that they're growing in, an area of their life that God's still working on. Or we want, you know, you want your husband to be more sensitive to your needs and your feelings, but God didn't make them that way, all right? And so there's a lot of room for growth there, all right? But maybe some progress being made. And not that they can't change, and not that we don't both in our marriages, all right, submit to one another and seek to serve each other's needs out of love, but all of that whining and all of that fussing and complaining, ignoring and withholding and yelling isn't going to change them. James says, that these desires and these expectations that we have, if we want to see them ultimately fulfilled, we need to know that those will never be fulfilled outside of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That the very most, first, most important thing that we can ever do is to go to the Lord first and to be in a constant and daily relationship with him. He says, hey, when you don't ask, you don't receive. But if you just ask that over time, and through the work of the Lord in our lives and in our marriages, that that gap would shrink and potentially disappear completely. And so what's the fourth key for us? It's just that constant reminder of the importance of prayer in your life right now and in your relationship with God to become desperately and more dependent on him every single day and to communicate with God in prayer, to to pray for your spouse, uh, to pray about your expectations, Uh, to pray about those things that are quarreling inside of you right now. James says, you don't have because you don't ask. He goes on and says, uh, you know, because we're asking, we sometimes ask with the wrong motives. And so maybe in your prayers and maybe in your thinking, you're, you're trying to pray in such a way that you shape your spouse into the person that you need him or her to be uh, instead of asking God to try and make you into the man or to the woman that he needs you to be, that he wants you to be. Let's see this in this couple one more time. And see how this conflict gets resolved uh, over in chapter 6 now, verse 1. Her friends ask of her, where has where your beloved gone, most beautiful of women? Which way did your beloved turn that we may look for him with you? She responds, my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to browse in the gardens and to gather the lilies. So, so she knows he's gone, all right? She's evidently figured out where she is. Uh, she, she knows he's gone down to the garden, maybe to walk off this frustration. And we see the work that God has done in her heart. All right, we've seen some of that in what we've looked at so far, but then watch how Solomon responds. He's had time to cool off, time to process, maybe time to pray. I mean, we know that his father David well, was a great prayer, all right, and so maybe he's praying too about all of this, and here's his response to her in verse four. He looks at his wife, and after this conflict, he says, you are as beautiful as Tirsa, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as troops with banners. What we take from this is just simply conflict resolved. Let's move on. You know, sometimes 
Christian marriages are elevated to this pedestal that supposes them to be perfect, that in some way we paint a picture that they should be without conflict, there should be no struggle, there should be no hurt, but that's not how marriages work in a fallen world. Two fallen people, there will be conflict in any relationship. And God is often, his desire, his hope is to use this union to take two sinners and to take them, you know, through darker places into deeper honesty, into a greater relationship with him. And he does this to deepen our dependence on him. Again, he does this to strengthen our relationship with one another. And hang on today. You know, consider maybe what the Lord wants to do in your life right now when it comes to your marriage or the relationship that you're in. Instead of praying for him to change her or to change to, to change him. Maybe ask God, what do you want to do in me? How do you want to change my heart and my life? One last thing, and as we wrap up this series today, you might remember way back from the very beginning that we said that while the story of the Song of Solomon is a story of a man and his love for a woman, ultimately it's the story of a Savior and his intense love for us. And thinking about that beginning of our, our, our message this morning, thinking about Solomon standing at this locked door wanting to come in, you know, one scholar was saying that a Hebrew person reading this text would have been stunned by the actions of this woman, you know, not racing to the door to let her king in. They would have also been amazed at the very same time at the king's pleading and his patience because kings don't beg, all right? They command. Well, the picture of Solomon here is much like the picture of our shepherd king, Jesus Christ. Revelation calls him the king of kings and lord of lords. And in Revelation 3.20, we get a picture of what he's really like when John writes, Jesus saying, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. See, what are the tender words of our Savior Jesus Christ like? He says to you, he says to me today, he says, I'm here. I'm standing at the door, I'm knocking, ready to come in ready to come into your life, ready to help, ready to come into your marriage, to be of help, to listen, ready to be a friend to you and to me. That's the precious invitation of our King, our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's his invitation to you today. It's an invitation to be in relationship with him, to know him, to turn to him, to have his help. This is the one, our King, who gave his life who shed his blood on the cross for you and me so that we could have life. Can I ask you today, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you know him as your savior and friend? You can do that today. You can just pray and invite him, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I wanna be in a relationship with you. Could that be the one thing that's missing in your marriage right now? To know Jesus as your savior, to invite him into your marriage today, to love you and to change you, to show you the way to live. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that uh, your word for us offers wisdom, and I, I hope I don't in any way today want to downplay some of the great challenges and some great conflicts that maybe some of our marriages are wrestling through right now, Lord. I pray that in those situations that you would give us wisdom, that you would give them wisdom how to act and next steps to take. But for all of us, Lord, I pray that there's really something that we can take away today that what it means to be patient, what it means to understand the expectations that we have, the reality of where we currently are and just the conflict in the middle of all of that. Lord, will you come to us in that conflict today and give us faith in you and trust in you and hope in you. And I pray that we would ultimately look to you first 
for the things that we need. And I pray for our marriages, and we pray for help, Lord, and we pray for strength, strengthen marriages here today. But Father, ultimately, I pray for every one of us that we would desire you, that we would turn to you, that we would seek you, Lord. And as you knock, as you knock at the door of our life today, I pray that we would say, oh, come in, Lord Jesus. You can have my life. You can have more of me today. Father, we thank you that you've made a way, that you've made a way into relationship with you through Jesus and through the cross.